Amen. Amen. Whew. Love that song. Hey, if you have a copy of God's Word today, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1. So please go ahead and turn it there. Um, we're going to be looking at Titus for the next several weeks, all the way up until Advent, okay, Christmas. And so I'm really excited about launching into this. And today, we get to kind of read the subject line. If you get an email, this is what determines whether or not you delete the email or you keep the email, right? The subject line of the email is kind of how you sort through your inbox. And today, we're just going to look at Paul's subject line, his opening, and what it might mean for us. And so I want you to join me in praying for the blessing of God's Word, for the hearing as we receive it, and that we, our hearts would be at attention as we say, Lord, what do you have for us today, even in this introduction? Starting in verse 1, it says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray that we would receive it today. That even in this introduction, that we'd consider how our lives might be defined by your life. That our lives would be in alignment if we believe that the knowledge of that belief would continue to inform our behavior. And I pray that this would be true for the sake of your great name, Jesus. Amen. This past week, my uh, middle child turned 13, and we have a little bit of a ritual when our kids hit the teenage years. We ask everyone who's kind of closely invested in their life to write them letters. And not just any letter, not just letters of blessing, but also letters of warning, of saying, hey, this is the good things that I see in you. These are the good things that have not yet been seen in you. Here's the ways in which you might be warned for the future. We did the same thing when our son turned 13. And our hope is that in moments of life when inevitably our kids will be bewildered, wondering who they are, what their purpose is, they will return to some of these letters where people have said, this is who you are. These are the good things I see in you. These are the good things that are being brought about in your life. And they'd receive from these words, words of life. Words of power, defining what the good life is. And today we're looking at a specific letter, Paul to Titus. And in the same way that these letters to my daughter would be encouraging for any of us to read. If you were to read them, you'd say, hey, that's probably true for most believers. These warnings are probably true for most believers this letter has been written to a very specific person in a very specific context. This epistle, this letter, was a real letter from a real man to another real man about a real group of churches in a real place called Crete. And it's a good gift to us that we have this letter recorded and written by Paul to Titus in Crete 
because it gives so much instruction about the simple, ordinary definition of what is a good life. What does it mean to live a good life? Now, this particular setting had a, a, a specific uh, list of challenges as de- they tried to define what the good life is. Specifically, in this island, um, Paul later describes it like this in chapter 1. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then right after that, he says, that's basically true. Good summary of what they're like there. And in this place, Paul's basically saying they're not truthful, they're evil, they don't work hard, they overeat. And I'm just wondering, what a picture of a place, right? Like if you were to draw a stereotype of a town and then everybody's like, yep, that basically sums it up. That's what they're like. I had the question this week, what would, what would sum up the lifestyle of people in Jackson or maybe even more so Northeast Jackson? What's the good life and what are the challenges to it? Here's a picture of Jackson. I just want you to imagine if God were to write a letter to us and say, in this specific context, here's the unique challenges that you have to face in your own story and all the stories around you that are competing for what the good life is, all the different myths of what it looks like, what you ought to be pursuing, Paul is writing this letter to describe what it is in a specific context. And the theme of Titus is just that there's this link between knowing the right things about God and behaving in such a way that you actually do understand and know them. He gives instructions around church leadership, qualifications on who should lead, who shouldn't, what family dynamics should look like, a woman, a man, what their roles are in the home, um, how we should relate to one another, to our bosses, to older people, younger people, how we should relate to government. And underneath all of these instructions is this desire, this exhortation that our lives would be in alignment with God's good design. What does it look like for us to live in alignment with the plumb lines of who God is and how he's created the world to work? Now, if this, uh, this subject line of the, the text, okay, this introduction were to give you kind of an overview, I think he, he kind of gets into, here's what I'm going to talk about in this, okay? And I want to kind of give you an overview of what we're going to see in this text. First, Paul's identity, then his purpose, Paul's protege, Timothy, and what we might learn about him. And then lastly, Paul's blessing, this initial greeting that just speaks a good word, a benediction at the very beginning. So let's uh, ask the Lord to continue to speak to us, starting with Paul's identity. Verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's answering the question, who are you receiving this letter from? And he knows who he is. He answers the question first with this, I'm a servant of God. He has four things here. First, I'm a servant. What a great way to think about oneself. And in fact, every person who belongs to God, this is true about us. Every person in the room, that we belong to him with great purpose. And Paul understood this purpose. He thought about the prophets who had come before him. They all had thought of themselves as servants. And he sees himself in this great line of men who would speak about the true things of God. His service was not always... uh, the case because initially he was opposed to the church. I want you to think about what it meant for Paul to say, I was a, I'm a servant of God. 
Now, he always thought that he was a servant, but initially he thought it would serve God more to revile everyone who would believe, to work against them, to persecute the church. And God had completely changed not only his perspective, but his entire life, reorienting from trying to destroy the work of God, but to trying to build up the work of God. What a great testimony that, that, that God can take the most oppositional, the most antagonistic person to the, bring, uh, to the gospel and to his work and then bring him to himself and say, now you're going to be my servant. Now, this is actually true for everyone who believes. He takes all of the ways that we're resistant and he converts us into his servant. Most importantly, he saw that his role of serving the church was one that's under authority. And he's going to see that later, that he's been entrusted and commanded. He sees himself as a servant. Paul isn't cooking up the dishes for this group of people, okay? He's not saying, Here, here's what I'd like to serve you. No, he's bringing to the table what God has given him to bring to the table. And then he talks about his, uh, his authority, okay? So He's not just a servant. He comes with humility under God's authority, but he's also an agent of God's authority. He spoke with a kind of authority that's not passed down through apostolic succession. He spoke as an apostle, one who had seen Jesus, been completely changed by Jesus, and his testimony becomes the foundation of the church that's being built up. It's a unique gifting, a unique kind of authority. And for us, the only way that we would have this kind of authority is to speak the words of the apostles to one another. That's why he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Why he later would say, I've been entrusted to preach this message. Let's go ahead and look at it in verse 3. He says, at the proper time, that's Jesus manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So first he sees himself as a servant, he sees himself with authority, and he sees himself as being entrusted with something unique. He's saying the ability to reveal the things of God through his words is only because he's been given this privilege to declare the truth of God to those who would hear. He's been entrusted with it. And lastly, he's commanded by God. He has this incredible sense of purpose in his ministry because he's coming with God's own voice for the people. He's saying, like, I, I've been commanded to do this. I'm not telling myself to come and tell you about the things of God and the knowledge of him. I've been commanded by someone else to bring this authoritative word about who you are and who God is and how he works. There's a sense of purpose and zeal in all of Paul's ministry that's not absent here. It's present because he's receiving this gift from the Father. He saw himself as a servant to God, not to himself. An apostle, a unique ambassador to establish the churches, proclaiming the message that he's been entrusted with and commanded to proclaim. And so I would just imagine to the question, who am I? Paul has an incredible grasp on the answer to that question. an incredible self-understanding of a servant, a commission, a recipient of something, and a responder to God's command in this. Before he launches into everything that he's going to say to Titus and to these churches, he's saying, I know who I am, and I'm the one that's bringing this message to you. I'm a man who's under authority. I'm not kind of wielding authority outside of authority. I'm bringing it as one who's received this message and received this power from some outside source. He's an instrument that's been tuned to the impulse of God's work. 
Here, Paul's not only saying that he should be listened to, but he's saying, here's why you should listen to me. This is why you should take me seriously. And he's laying out a model that, Timoth- that Titus would follow after him. Paul's deeply connected to the vision that God has for his life. And he's saying, I want you to listen and I want you to mimic what my life and ministry looks like. This grace of God fueled the ministry that he was part of. He's pushing back the lines for the kingdom. He had a sense that he wasn't on his own mission, but on God's. And he says, I'm a spiritual father. So I just want to ask before we move on, does any of you have a sense of where you fit in God's great world? Of who you are and who you might be becoming according to his words spoken over your life? For Paul, he not only was somebody who was called forth from the dead to life, from opposition to favor and servanthood, he knew what God had given him to do. He'd been entrusted with this command to speak, not from this place of wanting to belong, but to speak belonging so completely to those who belong to Christ. What would it look like for us to enter into whatever God's commanded of us with this great settled sense of who God's made us to be? To engage in our work, not from a place of questioning your significance, but of knowing it, of flipping on its heads the things that that all of the world is bringing to one another. Poor sources of the answer. He brings this great sense of purpose that the scriptures describe here. Clearly a servant, clearly entrusted, clearly commanded by God to do the things that are going to follow. And he brings it with confidence. And he says, here's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. Look at the next verse. Why is he writing it? Actually, verse one, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Why is Paul writing this letter? Why? What's the purpose behind it? He's going to lay out these three things. Number one, that those who belong to God would come to faith in God, the faith of the elect. He's not just saying he wants to strengthen the faith. He's saying, I want to bring about people believing in Christ. And then he says the knowledge of the truth and godliness. First, he's cultivating the faith of the elect. He's cultivating these three things. He's working for the God, those that God has already purchased by his blood to hear and to believe, to be able to respond to the message that they would be told in this moment. Paul understood that, that preaching was not grace. Preaching was the means by which God was extending grace to everyone who would believe. He didn't believe that preaching would somehow raise people from the dead. He knew that their spiritual state was dead. I heard this story recently of a preaching professor who the last act of his class, he would bring them all out to a cemetery and say, I don't want you to preach your message here. Let's go ahead and, and give the message to the dead here. He said, I want you to understand that every week, that's the task. You bring the message. He makes this appeal to faith. You know, some people, and he says he's doing it for the sake of the elect. Now, God's elect means everyone who believes on Jesus, his chosen ones, his beloved ones, the ones that have already been purchased by God. Now, everyone is created by God and some belong to him in a very specific way. Everyone in every age who's ever been redeemed by God, they are his elect. Now, before you get to thinking, well, what does this mean, okay? Does this mean that... 
that we shouldn't be motivated towards mission? Well, Paul didn't think so. He said, no, it's, absolutely ne- it's an absolute necessity that God would do the work of choosing and calling and specifically calling people to himself. But he said, how are they going to hear? Look at Romans 10, 14. He says, how are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him and of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In other words, he saw the necessity of his mission to go and increase the faith of those who've already been chosen by God. I don't even know it. There's people all around you that God has staked his claim on their life. And they have no idea. One of the things that we celebrate now, it's a, an, uh, a national holiday, Juneteenth, just the past year. Love the story of Juneteenth. After the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed and every slave was free, there was a group of about 200,000 slaves that had never heard the news. For two years, they're sitting, continuing in slavery, never knowing. And there's this, uh, this general, this Union General, Gordon Granger. He arrives in Galveston, Texas on June 19th and makes this, of 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, he announced that the president had issued this proclamation setting them free. Can you imagine the news? They had already been completely released, still in slavery. Paul's saying, hey, I have this ministry to proclaim the faith of those that have been chosen by God. This is how the gospel's brought to those who would believe. Their price has already been paid. The debt of sin completely paid for. We need messengers of this kind of freedom. And Paul brought this word to those that had been chosen before the foundation of the earth. And then when they believed, they were freed. Became real. Their understanding He says, not only for their faith, but I'm working for the sake of them growing in their knowledge of the truth. Second purpose of of Paul's ministry, he says, look, I want the faith of the elect, their knowledge of the truth. Look, in this place, there was a ton of confusion. Jewish myths, myths about Zeus, stories about a God who lies just to trick people. A liar, a trickster. This is the kind of person that they thought was in the heavens ruling over their life. And can you imagine coming into all of those traditions and saying, look, you don't have to resemble this false God. (laughs) You can resemble the true God who never lies. He's never trying to trick you. He's not trying to rip the rug out from underneath you around the corner. I want you to know who he is and how he works and what he's like. And in many ways, our faith is fatigued and small because our knowledge of God hasn't moved from just belief to understanding. Saying this is what he actually is like to fill our minds with thinking. A.W. Tozer says the Christian is strong or weak depending on how closely he has cultivated the knowledge of God. He goes on to say, Paul was anything but an advocate for once-done automatic school of Christianity. He devoted his whole life to the art of knowing Christ. 
And progression in the Christian life is exactly equal to the growing knowledge we gain of the triune God in personal experience. And such experience requires a whole life devoted to it, plenty of time spent at the holy task of cultivating this knowledge of God. His purpose wasn't just that people would come to faith and believe. His purpose was that they would grow in the depths and understanding of the truth. In his last piece of this puzzle, he says, look, I, I don't just want you to come to faith and the knowledge of truth. I want lives that accord with godliness. This third piece of the puzzle, he wants to cultivate a group of people that not only know the Lord and are growing in their depth of understanding of the Lord, but lives that are in alignment with his truth. Unity between the knowledge of the truth and the behavior of holiness. You ever had somebody say something, you're like, you just don't believe that. You do not believe that. There's nothing about your life that actually resembles that truth. Like, so if I were to say like, hey, God is provider, and you guys all would nod your head, yes, that's who he is. What does your anxiety point to? What are your deepest fears about that truth of God's provision? God is protector. He's good. In how many ways do our lives not resemble that reality of truth? Paul's saying, I want to be an advocate, a cultivator of this godliness that walks in accordance to what you actually cognitively believe. You imagine somebody after teaching cotillion with white gloves, all about the manners, going over to the barbecue place, ordering ribs and wings and just going to town. He's saying, look, there's so many people in this island, this, little, this group of churches, there's something that's out of alignment here. One of these things is not like the other, right? He said, I want to cultivate in you this power to grow, to grow more and more similar to the God that has saved you. Now, if you see godliness, as he's defining it here, as just a willpower to avoid sin, you're going to miss the power. I'm going to say that again. Look, it's not about the effort to kind of build barriers around our life so that we don't sin, Okay. Walking with Jesus isn't just sin avoidance, okay? It's about being with God and knowing Him, and that power of knowing and walking with Him translates into our lives so that we resemble Him more and more and more. The whole of the Christian life is seeing clearer who God is and bringing your life into alignment with your Creator, his Spirit reveals all these ways in which we're out of step with Him, right? When you spend time with Him, you begin to see like, hey, I'm not in alignment here. This is discongruent. And Paul's appeal throughout this letter, and even in this introduction, is that he's appealing that their lives would accord with godliness. That they would have a resemblance, a striking resemblance to the grace, to the mercy, to the power of their creator that's been ultimately demonstrated through Jesus Christ. And here we see, that's why I'm writing this letter. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And how, what's, what's the blanket statement over all of it? It's that they're doing this in the hope of eternal life. 
That they're radically living in this sense of hope that we're not attaching ourselves to things that are temporary, but to things that are eternal. That our hope is eternal. So what kind of things is he going to address in this book? I just want to kind of give you like a a precursor of what's to come. Number one, he's going to address elders. Like, hey, people who lead in the church should be qualified in the following ways. And we're going to look at that next week. Just a reminder that we presented an elder candidate last week, Josh Brooks. And for 40 days, we're presenting him to our church. And if you have any concerns about his life or you want to get to know him better before he's commissioned as elder, you have these 40 days that started last week to do that. Then he addresses false teachers. He's like, look, there's people who need to be corrected sharply. They're not fit. He addresses that. And then he addresses order in the home, functionally men and women. What roles do they play in the context of the home and with one another? Older women, younger women, older men, younger men. How do we interact with each other in the household of faith? How should we interact with our bosses? Okay, anybody have a struggle there? He's going to say, look, here's what godliness looks like in the context of your vocation. And he's going to talk about government. And in all of these places, there's a simplicity to just good living. A natural progression that Paul's defining here in this introduction is what's going to be cultivated over the next three chapters. That, that he's, he's cultivating their faith, their knowledge of the truth, and their accordance with that knowledge in the everyday practice of their life. So before I move on, I want to ask a few questions because God is so patient. He's so patient in cultivating these things in us. And yet he's still about that purpose. He's still doing the same kind of things that we would come to faith in him. So I want to ask you, what are the things that you profess to believe but you do not yet fully understand? Are you okay with just saying, yes, I belong to that church or I belong to that faith. I belong to this this simple, like I'm part of this denomination, whatever it is. There's lots of ways that we've entered into this faith and sometimes our progress stops there. Paul's purpose is, I don't just want them to have faith, I want them to grow in the depth of the knowledge of the truth. So are there things that you believe but you do not understand? Hopefully that's true of all of us, unless you're just like really arrogant, right? Like, are there things that you believe, but you do not understand? If the answer is yet, yes, there's an invitation for us to say, Lord, what do you have for me as we study this book? What is it you're cultivating in me? Are there things that you already know, but they've made no difference in your life? Look, Everyone knows the greatest area of hypocrisy, right? Like if I were to name, if you were to be asked right now, what's the greatest gap between what you say is true and how you actually believe? This book, this message is going to press into that gap and say, this is a gap that God wants to bring closer and closer and closer together so that your life is not out of step with what you believe and what you've come to know. Is there discord in my own life? Where am I out of alignment? This is, this is something the Spirit would constantly invite us to ask and say, Lord, just reveal. The Spirit's work is, being, is bringing us into all of these things where we say, Lord, we're awaiting the day of our complete and total redemption. There's a lot of things He's already done and there's a whole lot of not yet. And I'm living in the tension of like who I hope to become and who I know that I'm not yet. 
This hope of eternal life that's in verse 2, which God, who never lies, promised to us before the ages begin. In other words, in this tension between what we believe and, and don't know, really, what we know and do not act, really, God is saying, I want you to pay attention to eternity because there's a process that you all are in, and he's inviting you into it. And you just imagine one day being home at last and saying, this is what I've longed for. There's this picture in the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, if you're into to fantasy world, there's this moment where they get to kind of the equivalent of heaven and, and they exclaim, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up and further in. And and the invitation between this day and that is that we would come further up and further in, that we would not only long for it and look for it, but we'd live within the context of the hope of eternity and say, there's moments when I taste it, I can see it, I know that it's real. And there's moments where all I have is my longing to be delivered. And this God who never lies has promised to us. And now at this proper time, Paul is saying this truth of who God is is being manifested in his word. Look at verse three. Through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Verse four. And he says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Before I conclude, let's look at Paul's protege. He says with great affection. I can just imagine him pinning these words. My true child. This belief in Titus, the confidence that what God had called them both to do, that Titus was going to be able to do his part. And he spoke of him with possession. He's my child. You watch and see the resemblance between my ministry and this young man that I've left behind. I want you to pay attention to his words. Look and see the resemblance. You want it. Look, there's moments when you like want to see a resemblance in your child, right? And sometimes you're like, oh, that, that, that looks like me and it's not the resemblance that you want to see. Paul is looking and saying, this is my true child. He possesses the same kind of calling and authority and power that I left him there to do. Now you can imagine Titus being left behind, right? Like at some point you're one. If I'm Titus, I'm like, look, these people are a mess. This is, this is super messy. I'm not sure if I'm like cut out for this kind of crazy people that are, they are wild. This is my true child in a common faith. I left you there to set things in order. The next verse says this. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. The work, there's still work to be done. There's still a lot of work that's happening. Now throughout the book, he's saying like, I want there to be order in the church, sound doctrine, doctrine, godliness that aligns with the doctrine, which we already went over. And Titus is young enough to be his child, but bold enough to rebuke people sharply, which is what he's going to tell them to do. It's like those people that aren't qualified and fit, I want you to really call them out in a sharp way. Paul's not just described his ministry in the verses leading into this. He's saying, this is the model. You, you cultivate faith, the knowledge of the truth, lives that accord with godliness. 
And just in the same way that I'm a servant that's been entrusted by God and commanded by Him, in the same way, Titus, that's what I've left you here to do, to resemble the same kind of ministry. And I don't know if you've ever felt abandoned by somebody who's invested in you or who had led you to a certain point and you're like, I'm alone. Paul says, Titus, my true child in a common faith. He says, grace and peace to you from our Father. He leaves him with this blessing, reminding him, look, you're not just my child, we're brothers. We're siblings here. We have the same commission, same call. Now, before I get into his blessing, I want you to imagine again that this letter is written to us, to Jackson. Maybe not just Jackson, but zoom in on Bellwether. Zoom in on your house, where you live in this metropolitan area. Where do you live? What does, what's the letter that's being written to you today? It's very similar. Blessings, warnings, corrections, all for the sake of our faith, for our knowledge of the truth, and lives that accord with godliness. Some of you who do not yet believe, you have no real knowledge uh, of this truth. And I want you to, to hear this word. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that he came to rescue anyone who would believe. And if you're thinking, there's no way, I've sinned too far, I've sinned away my day of grace. You feel too far from him. I want you to know that the man writing this is a man who is killing people in the name of God against the cause of Jesus Christ. And he was rescued. He was rescued by God, commissioned by God with this ministry. Many of you maybe feel out of sorts today and you think, who am I? What role do I play? Paul answers that question for himself. And I can't necessarily answer that question for you. I don't know your story of faith. I don't know what God's commissioned and entrusted you to do. But what I do know is that everyone who belongs to him has been entrusted with his spirit. And he's given you works in advance, works that he's planned out for you in advance. And maybe you feel bewildered today and you need to return like, I I believe that my daughter, my son will return one day to the letters that have been written over their life and ask the question, who am I? Where do I belong? What role am I playing in this great big world? And today, as we return to God's word and receive it, before we receive this blessing, I want us just to feel the bewilderment of being left behind and feeling like there's a task that's much too great for us. And for everyone in this room, there's most likely something that you feel like a particular drive to do, and you feel like you do not have the capacity to do it. You have a, a check that you know will bounce. And you're asking, what's my purpose? Where am I at? Where am I going to progress? Where's my relief? And before we read this blessing, I want you to know that the greatest sense of authority and control that you might be grasping at is knowing that God himself has rescued you and redeemed you and commissioned you for his purpose. The greatest sense of progress that we could have is not sin management or just trying to make it through a week where we didn't fall or come short. The progress that he's calling and inviting us into is one of knowing and experiencing the living God and that truth, the knowledge of that truth transforming what our lives look like. 
Our greatest comfort isn't that we're going to find some relief in this temporary world, but our hope is eternal, that every minor relapse, setback, stumble, every time we drift, the direction of our souls is towards heaven, where we'll say, this is the land that I've been longing for. And in between the days when we feel all out of sorts and wondering what God's word is for us, I want us just to receive Paul's blessing to Titus today in closing. This would be our benediction and his launch into the book. Paul's blessing is this. Look at it with me. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace. I speak this grace over us as a congregation. God's unmerited favor and enduring power. I pray that you would experience the powerful reality that God has given you his affection of no working of your own, of nothing that you could earn, that you've just simply received it. And for every way that you feel weary, he gives you grace, grace that will empower you to endure, to reach the day of conclusion where you see him face to face. He gives you this blessing grace. He also gives you peace in whatever difficult location or task or call or family that he's called you to be in. He gives you this message of peace that goes beyond your comprehension, beyond your inner stability, beyond your own strength to stand and think right thoughts. God offers you his peace. And in the midst of us acknowledging that our own human means will not be sufficient Receive this benediction, grace and peace from God our Father. No matter what Father has abandoned you, He is steady and complete and He endures. He's a good Father. Even as Paul had left Titus as a spiritual father, he's saying, you are not fatherless in this place. The task that you've been called to, you have a Father who's with you, who endures Grace and peace from God our Father and from Christ our Savior. Listen, if you're trusting in Him today, if you're wondering, am I one of those elect? Listen, if you're trusting in Him, if He's your only hope, that's a good sign that you're one of those that belong to Him. Christ is your Savior He's the one who paid the ultimate price for our sin, who accomplished all that it took to save us, who conquered even death in our place and then offers that kind of strength and life to you. He's the one who promised and he is not a liar. He's not a trickster. He's not waiting to rip the rug out from underneath you when things get too hard or get too tough. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He's still working these things out in you. It's incomplete. And we long for a day when you say, all together, this is what we were waiting for. This is the moment when this is, this is the life that we were made for. And in between this day and that, grace and peace from God our Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. May it be so. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this, your word. Just an introduction to this book. (laughs) Lord, we so desperately need you. The funds are insufficient to the call, (laughs) but you have a supply that goes beyond our personal means. You have such a great supply. And so today, as we remember these words that Paul wrote to Titus, 
that we would receive the same kind of affirmations of being children of yours. A father who won't abandon us, who doesn't lie to us, who's sufficient. I pray that this would be something we could receive today as we come to communion. That we'd be reminded of your sufficiency and your supply. We'd turn our eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. Everyone who's been begun in this room, you will bring it about to completion. And I pray that they, we would be comforted by that truth today. In Jesus' beautiful name, I pray. Amen.